Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Acts 17, verse number 6. Let's read it aloud together. Ready? Begin. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. I have that phrase underlined in my Bible. These that have turned the world upside down. Now, these were the, the non-believers in Thessalonica, the second largest city in Greece at that time, about 200,000 people, a very important seaport town as it still is today. To this day, it's now would be called, if you've been to Greece, Salonica, uh, Thessalonica there. These were non-believers that were saying this. This was not a compliment, these that have turned the world upside down. This was really an accusation, but, but what a beautiful description of the impact that, that Paul and Silas and the early disciples were having in, in the early church there as they were spreading the gospel. And now the gospel has made its way, as we studied in, in chapter 16, it's made its way to, to Europe. And, and Paul and Silas, they ministered in a day, that those in the early church, the, the early disciples, they ministered in a day that was against God. They lived in places where governmental leaders were not friendly to Christians. They were not ex accepted by many in society, and as we've been seeing as we're walking through the book of Acts together, in, literally, in nearly every city that they went to, they were run out of town just about as quickly as they came into town. Preaching Jesus was not a popular message in that day. They were viewed as weird, they were viewed as strange, they were viewed as holding to these strange beliefs that, that not everybody believed. They were viewed as countercultural. And the accusation made against them right here in verse number six of chapter 17 was that they had turned the world upside down. I would suggest that the, those that said that about them had it wrong. I would suggest the world was, that they were living in was already upside down. It, were, it was Paul and Silas and the gospel of Christ that was turning the world right side up. It was putting people back where they should be. And, and as we think about the day and age in which Paul and Silas ministered, does any of that sound familiar to you and to me today? In 2020, don't we live in an upside down world in many ways? Tens of thousands of people are praised for gathering in the streets to let their voices be heard, but we're told we shouldn't celebrate Thanksgiving with our extended family. Sounds kind of like an upside-down world. Airplanes in every state of the Union are packed with people all day, every day, but many states have told people that they cannot worship in loosely filled churches. I would suggest to you that that's an upside-down world. One of our states has legalized or, or decriminalized crack and heroin, while other states have outlawed plastic straws. That's an upside-down world. Much of the world has been brought to a screeching halt over a virus that sadly has contributed to the loss of, one, of about 1.3 million lives in 2020. And, 
And I grieve for every family worldwide that has been impacted and, and lost a loved one or, or, or seen suffering of a loved one. Yet I haven't heard a single governmental leader around the world calling for any kind of drastic action to combat the 73 million babies whose lives will be lost to abortion worldwide this year. What an upside-down world. American pastors and Christians sometimes will loudly proclaim their political allegiances on a daily basis, yet go noticeably quiet for weeks, months, or even longer when it comes to preaching and proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus Christ. What an upside-down world. In America, marriages between a man and a woman are at an all-time low, while same-sex unions are at an all-time high. What an upside-down world. Pastors in some of the country's largest churches across the country are, who are called to unashamedly preach the whole counsel of God will go months without ever mentioning any of the biblical issues that are blights on our nation that I just addressed, while the enemies of God will boldly declare the Bible to be hate speech. What an upside-down world when we can't even find truth in the churches that are called to be the pillar and ground of the truth. I would suggest to you that Church family, we are living in many ways in an upside-down world. I don't share these things to discourage us, and I'm not on a political rant this morning. I, I don't share these things to anger us. I share them to remind us of the world that we live in, but, but I want to encourage us, and we're going to see some things. It really isn't all that different than the world that Paul and Silas and Peter and Timothy and Luke and Mark and John and the disciples and Matthew found themselves in some 2,000 years ago. And, and I want you to see what did they do in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation? What did they do when they found themselves living in an upside-down world? They ran and hid in their bunkers to safely stay until they died. Is that what they did? No. They moved to a more conservative state where, where everyone would be more friendly to their beliefs. Is that what they did? No. They started a political revolution to right all the spiritual wrongs in society. No. What did they do in their upside-down world? They turned the world upside down. That was what the unbelievers said. These people's influence and impact and testimony and work and ministry is so powerful, it has changed everything. These are they that have turned the world, these that have turned the world upside down have come here. We've heard about what they did in Jerusalem, and we heard about what they did in Antioch, and we heard about what they did on Cyprus, and we heard about what they did in Tarsus, but now they've brought it to Europe, and, and we heard about what they had done in Philippi, and those that have turned the world upside down, this was not a compliment. This was an accusation, but what a testimony. Those that have turned the world upside down, they've made it to our city here in Greece. They've made it to Thessalonica. I want to bring to you for a few moments this morning, I'd like to preach on the message, turning the world upside down. Turning the world upside down. If you and I believe that there are some things that we live in a little bit of an upside down world today, 
that there are some things that just don't make sense to the believer and some things that just don't gel with the teachings and truths of Scripture. If, if you, like me, look around and sometimes you say, I wonder what this nation or this, this state or this world's going to look like for our children and our grandchildren. The answer is not anger. The answer is not vitriol. The answer is not a, a political revolution. The answer is what we're going to find right here, and we're going to see it, those that turned the world upside down. Where are we in the book of Acts? We're starting here in Acts 17, a new chapter. I think we have that map that we've shown multiple times over the last few weeks. Where we're at is Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's taking the gospel to new places. It started right there at Antioch on the far right of the map, right above the word Syria. It started at Antioch. It went through all of those spots. And then it crossed over into Europe, into Philippi, that's that dot at the very top there, about 10 miles inland. That's where we ended last week. Paul and Silas had been released from prison. They had been jailed for preaching Jesus. They'd been jailed for casting a demon out of a young lady. And, uh, and, and now they're released from prison. They've gone to Lydia's house. They've comforted that, that young new church, the church at Philippi, where he will later write a, a letter to them that's in our Bibles, the, the epistle of, to the Philippians, that book of Philippians that we read. This is the group. So that's where we ended last week. Let's pick it up in verse number one of chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, do you see that? Go back to that map, if you will, please. You see that on the map right there from Philippi? It's about 30 miles. So they, they made it in, in three days. So they, they traveled about 30 miles a day, 30 or 40 miles. Many believe they must have had horses of some sort, which may have been a gift from the church at Philippi um, because they didn't bring those over with them on the boat. They don't, they, most don't think that Paul and Silas, having just been scourged and beaten, would have been in any physical shape to walk 30 or 40 miles per day. And so we see they come to Amphipolis, and, and then they come to Apollonia. You see it there, the next one, about 30 more miles. They don't stop and preach in either of those places. Then they came to Thessalonica, about 40 miles, the second largest city in Greece. They're following at that time what is known as the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. It was the interstate of that day. It was the, the main thoroughfare there through Europe. It was where all the trade and business passed. They're stopping through these cities. They come to Thessalonica, one of the most important cities. So that's where we find ourselves and that's how, where we're at when we start to read Acts 17. I'm not going to get into it today. We'll get into it starting next week. But to give you the big picture of the whole chapter, they're going to visit three cities in Greece. They're going to go to Thessalonica, to Berea, and then by boat over to Athens. So chapter 17 is going to cover those, I guess you could say five dots. Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, and then to Athens. We're going to stay in Thessalonica today. Now, verse number two, that was just to make sure we knew where we're at in the Bible. Chapter number, uh, verse number two, chapter 17, verse two. And Paul, notice these next four words, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude and of the chief women, not a few, meaning a lot. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd, the King James Bible has some cool phraseology, sometimes verbiage. They call it lewd fellows of the baser sort. That'd be a cool phrase to work into your conversation. I was, I was in a bad part of town and I saw some lewd fellows of the baser sort. 
Just kind of a cool little turn of phrase. And he says, it says there in verse number uh, five, uh, that moved within, they took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them, meaning Paul and Silas, out to the people. And when they found them not, Paul and Silas were not there, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. They're here. I know it. Whom Jason hath received, he let them into his house. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Do you see it? They're, they're countercultural. They're not politically correct. Saying that there is another king, one Jesus. This was mind-blowing that somebody would speak against Caesar. Now, by the way, Paul and Silas didn't speak against Caesar, but they did say there's only one king, Jesus. In fact, Jesus spoke for Caesar, said, give to Caesar what he deserves. Verse 8, and they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they had heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason, they made him pay a, a bail, a bond there. They got some money to make sure that they wouldn't flee and they wouldn't. And of the other, they let them go. If we find them here, we're going to keep your money. So they, they, then they let them go. They let them free. That, that was the whole story that were recorded in Thessalonica. From this, from three Sabbath days, about a month of Sundays, is going to come a church that you can read about. Paul writes back to First and Second Thessalonians, the books of the Bible. He writes these letters, and you can learn a lot more about this church, and it all happens. So what happens? He comes from Philippi, and he goes, and he goes into the synagogue. And by the way, he goes into the synagogue. Do you see it there? As his manner was. They go into the synagogue and they begin to preach and, and a lot of people start getting saved. There's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has not lost its power in 2020. I don't care what news channel you watch. I don't care what Facebook accounts you follow. I don't care what, what notifications you get on your phone. I don't care what's happening out there. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not lost a single bit of his effectiveness in 2020. It can still save a soul, change a life, turn a life uh, from death unto life, turn a life upside down, if you will, and turn the world upside down. And they come, and many people start getting saved, and this is bad for business. People coming to Christ from the synagogue is not good because that means they're not going to keep coming to the synagogue. They're not going to keep worshiping with the Judaizers. They're not going to keep giving their money. This is not a good thing if you're a priest you don't like it if somebody is stealing a bunch of the people that attend your synagogue every week. And so it says here, it says that, that the Jews which believed not, so the, the Orthodox Jews that didn't believe in Christ, moved with envy, they got a, a group of thugs, a, group, a band of, of, of ruffians together, and they said, let's go, let's go, let's go take care of this. And they drew out the rulers of the city, they got all these people, and the phrase was, these that have turned the world upside down. They meant it in a bad way. I would suggest to you, I would love for that if somebody were to say, Liberty Baptist Church has turned Newport Beach upside down with the gospel of Christ. I want to talk to us today about turning the world upside down. What do we see in their lives, Paul and Silas and the believers there, that led to them turning the world upside down? It's only two thoughts today. Number one, we see, and it's very clear, it's all through Acts, but especially this passage, we see their message. Their message. 
They had a certain message that turned the the world upside down. By the way, it wasn't a one-time thing that they preached Jesus. And Paul, as his manner was, it's who Paul was. Everywhere that Paul went, he introduced people to Jesus. He told them what Christ had done for him. Everywhere he went, he was constantly talking about them. And we wonder today, well, you study it. There are millions of Christians in America and billions of Christians, according to statistics around the world. Then why are we not making... uh, Why are we not making as big of an impact or turning the world upside down in ways? Why do we often feel that we're losing the war uh, maybe in our culture or in society? Why would that be? I would suggest to you it's because our manner is not what Paul's manner was. Paul's manner was everywhere he went, he shared the message of Jesus Christ. What about you and what about me? How often are we talking about Christ? How often are we sharing him? What was Paul's message? Look at it in verse number three. Notice the words, opening and alleging. First in verse two, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Verse three, opening and alleging that, what's that word? Opening, alleging that what church? Who is it? Christ. His message was Christ. Must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this, who church? Jesus, whom I preach unto you is who? You see what his message is? Christ. Jesus Christ. By the way, the Jews at the synagogue there did not believe that Christ was the Messiah. They were, I was talking with uh, someone in our church, newer, newer family in our church this week, and they asked, what's the difference between um, Judaism and Christianity? And here it is. Here's the difference. Jews, we would both believe the same Old Testament, and we would, we would, we would both believe in God, Jehovah, but the Jews did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Why? To this day, Orthodox Jews still do not believe that the Messiah has come. Why? They were not looking for a suffering Savior. They were looking for a politically triumphant Savior. They were looking for a Savior that would come, that would bring political peace, that would be strong militarily, that would fight their battles, that would make them popular, that would make them their, their nation very safe and secure, that would make them not exposed to any outside attacks. In fact, the disciples, after being with Jesus for a long time, still didn't understand that he came to die. You remember James and John when their, his, their mom came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I've got a question for you. She said, what is it? When you come into your, when you set up your kingdom, can my boy sit at your right hand and your left and he said you don't know what you're asking for you don't you don't have you don't understand my kingdom do you my kingdom isn't one of political power my kingdom isn't one that if if the right guy gets elected boy that's really going to make my life easier and better that's not what I'm about Jesus so and so he tells them he's telling them from the old testament scriptures undoubtedly Paul was taking them to Isaiah 53 that prophecy and undoubtedly taking them to some of the messianic psalms where the where it tells us that the savior would need to suffer and die and rise again but they weren't looking for that so that's what he tells them in verse 3 he says Christ he must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead you don't, you don't give him credit for being Messiah because you expected him to create a political powerhouse. That's not what the Messiah was ever supposed to do. The Old Testament, you believe, prophesied that's not what he would do. 
But his message was Christ. It was Jesus. It was Christ. Look at verse number seven. What was Paul's message that turned the world upside down? Whom Jason hath received, verse seven, and these all, Paul and Silas, these believers, do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. What was their message? Don't get so caught up in the politics down here. Don't get so caught up in the earthly rulers to to determine your happiness or your peace or your comfort. That was the message. Don't get so worried about this. The accusation against them was these people don't, they they don't care about the government down here. They say there's one that's bigger than the government down here and his name is Jesus. That was the message that turned the world upside down. There is one king, Jesus. You say, Pastor Ryan, come January 2021, who do you think will be the one who's ruling over all of us? I've been watching the news this week, and it seems a little confusing, and I I read this article and that article. I can tell you, in come January 2021, the one who will be ruling over all of this, his last name isn't Biden, and his last name isn't Trump. King Jesus will still be at the right hand of the Father. Our God will still be on his throne, and as Paul told the Romans in Romans 13, verse number 1, there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Christian, don't look for your security. Don't look for your comfort in these things down here, in this upside-down world. Those that had turned the world upside down, how did they do it? Their message was focused on one and one alone, and his name is Jesus. Let that truth sink in. There is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Embrace that truth, Christian. I doubt you heard that on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or Newsmax this week, but that is the truth that kept Paul and Silas on mission here in Acts 17. It wasn't about Nero or Pilate or Alexander the Great or Claudius. It was all about Jesus. It wasn't about do I have religious freedom or not. It was about wherever I go, I preach Jesus. And if that lands me in jail, I preach Jesus. And when I get to jail, I preach Jesus. And when I get out, I preach Jesus. And when I go to the next town, I preach Jesus. And how are we going to turn the world upside down. I'm going to tell everybody that I can that there is only one that has the answers to the problems of this world, and his name is Jesus. Don't lose sight of that. It was true here, and it's true today. By the way, if any church is going to make a truly lasting eternal impact, the focus is going to have to be on Jesus. The preaching is going to have to be thoroughly biblical. Every week using scripture, you don't see Paul emphasizing his personal experiences or his traditions or his preferences. What was he doing? Preaching Jesus, going to the Old Testament, preaching Jesus. Here at Liberty, I, 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 I pray that we'll stay, but my commitment to you is to preach truth over tradition, to preach scriptures over self-help, to preach Jesus over any man. And there are some people that would like me to mention some things more often than I do, but, but my focus is if that's where God God has this in scripture, I'll mention it. I mentioned what you could call some political issues this morning, but they're not political issues, they're biblical issues. The life of the unborn is a biblical issue. Marriage between a man and a woman is a biblical issue. And so when we come to a place, we'll deal with those things that affect our culture, but it's not, preaching doesn't need to be about our culture or a man or a government or a governor or a president or a country. doesn't mean we'll never mention those things, but the thing that will turn the world upside down is the preaching of the cross of Christ and him crucified. We need to get back to making him the preeminent one in our churches, in our families, and in our lives. Here's a convicting question for you and for me. 
if someone looked at your social media feed and mine for the past week or month, what would they deduce is the biggest priority, the, the most important message in your life? What about if we replayed all of your digital and text and, and phone and personal conversations this week? What would people deduce is that must be the message they're living for. That's the most important thing they're living for. What would it be for you, for me? You know what? I knew I was going to preach this so this morning. I went back and looked for about a week on my social media feed to see what it would be. For some, it would be food. Really. And I like some good food. I just talked about Oreos and my favorite Ripple protein shakes. They're amazing. You guys have got to get some. It'll, it'll change your life. For others, it would be sports. would be the, the most important message of our lives according to our communications. For others, it would be pleasure. Others, it would be work. Others, it would be politics. Others, it would be entertainment. For others, it would be family. By the way, there's nothing wrong inherently with any of those. For many, it would be self. Selfie after selfie after selfie after selfie. Oh, that God would put his people, his, that God's people would put him and he would be placed back in his rightful position as king of every part of our lives. What did Paul tell his young son in the faith, Timothy? What did he say? Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. When it's going well, when it isn't, preach the word. In jail, out of jail, preach the word. They love you, they hate you, preach the word. Preach the word, preach the word. I like the, the statement from Nicholas Zinzendorf. He famously said regarding the Christian's purpose in this life, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's our priority. It's all about Jesus. Christians that turn the world upside down, I see here, will first of all be bold. They'll be bold. Christians that turn the world upside down will not be afraid of the consequences of living their faith in the midst of a, an upside down world. What, what had just happened to Paul and Silas for preaching the word in Philippi? They had been thrown into jail, right? What about before that? What had happened? With, they had come through in Iconium. They had, been, they had been run out of town. In Lystra, Paul had been stoned and left for dead. He had been, he'd been beaten. They had just been beaten there in, uh, in Philippi. You go uh, Iconium, there's oh, Antioch, Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch there. They had been run out of town over and over and over again. Every time he opened his mouth for Jesus, some kind of pain came into his life. And yet, what was the first thing that he did when he got to Thessalonica? He looked on Google for the nearest synagogue, and he went there and started preaching Jesus. How do I get to that nearest synagogue? I gotta go tell somebody about Jesus. But and, and I don't know. I, I Silas and Timothy obviously didn't. Demas maybe had this spirit. But Paul, what about like, remember like the last time you almost died? Maybe we could just kind of tone it down a little bit and we'll just kind of leave, you know, maybe anonymous little uh, scrolls around the place that Jesus is king or something. Uh, we don't have to put our names on it or anything. We can do something where they don't know that we're actually Christians. We don't have to make a big deal about it, right? I don't know that anybody did that, but, but some of us would probably if that were the case. But Paul was bold. What does he do when he's forced to flee Iconium and faces persecution in Antioch? What does he do? He boldly preaches Jesus. Church family in 2020, timid, fragile, easily offended, temperamental, fearful Christians are not what is needed in an upside-down world. Courageous, bold, passionate, dedicated Christians focused on Jesus is what this world needs. If we're going to turn the world upside down, we're going to be bold with the message 
message that I, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's one reason we put that banner out. And we're not advertising an event that's coming up. We're not advertising a, a ministry, and we will in the future. But I wanted a banner. I, I don't know that we, I wanted a banner that just boldly said, Jesus is what you need. He's what will make a difference in this, this world with so many challenges in this year of so much craziness. Not only was, was, was their message bold and were they bold, but they were biblical. Look at the verbs in verse number uh, two. Notice what it says that Paul, as his manner was, went unto them, and three Sabbath days, the word there, reasoned. In the Greek, that word, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I try not to pronounce Greek words too much because we have a a, a, a doctorate, a man that's a doctorate in Greek that watches all the time. Brother Jay, we love you. We miss you. We're praying for you. And, and so it's a little intimidating for me to say the Greek pronunciation wrong when he's sitting there. If he wasn't here, none of you know it either, so I could just say it, whatever it is. And you would think, wow, he really knows Greek, but he knows I don't know it. So, But Jay could tell you that the Greek word for reason that I don't know how to pronounce is where we get the word, the English word, dialogue. It's, it's that word of questions and answers. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures. They had a question, and it's interesting that I mentioned Jay today because that's exactly how Jay got saved. He was in the military, and he had a Christian roommate that shared Jesus and, and, uh, and, and a friend that came, and, and Jay said, he brought his Bible. He said, don't talk to me. There's no way I'm becoming a Christian. I have too many questions you can't answer. That's what Jay told his friend. The man that you and I know is, as one of the most faithful biblical teachers in our church when he started, told his friend, don't talk to me. I have too many questions you can't answer. And here's what his friend said. His friend said, he, he passed over the Bible. He said, this has all the answers. What's your first question? And Jay asked a question, and that man gave an answer, not of his opinion from the Bible. And Jay asked another question, and that man gave an opinion. And Jay asked another question in the Bible. Jay found out the Bible had all the answers. And so what happened just like here, he said, you know what? I don't have any reason not to believe the Bible has the answers, and God's Word has the truth. I, I put my faith and trust in Christ. And some 50 years later, there's a life that has touched hundreds, yea, thousands of other lives through Jay and Betsy Shaner and their marriage. Why? Because there was somebody that was able and willing, they knew the Bible enough, to reason with a friend out of the scriptures. Church family, uh, may I say this? It's a phrase that I'll use often. Truth isn't afraid of questions. Be wary of a Christian leader that discourages sincere questions that are asked in the right spirit. I'm not talking, the Bible does talk about the fact that, that we can have, have just questions that create doubtful disputations and it just becomes a debate. I'm talking about somebody that really says, what does the Bible say about this and why? Help me understand that. I want to live God's word more. We ought never be afraid of somebody. If we have the truth, there should be, we, we had, as I mentioned, we had a new family to our church, in our church, over to our home this week for a meal. And, and, and as we were sitting there on the table, I had a wonderful time. I, I just said, do you have any questions? What do you have questions about me, about the church? All of this is new to you. You don't have much of a church background. What questions do you have? And they had some tremendous questions. Why, why did I say that? If what we preach is true, I shouldn't be scared of what somebody has to ask, ask me. If the Bible has the answers, I shouldn't be afraid of those questions. And by the way, I'm not the only one commanded to know God's word enough to be able to give an answer. Every one of us is commanded to be ready always to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. The only way to do that is to become a student of the Bible. By the way, one hour, and I'm glad you're here for, I say one hour, it's always a little more than an hour, 90 minutes on Sunday morning is not enough. 
You're not going to be a biblical Christian that can share the message boldly with 90 minutes on a Sunday morning and never opening God's word again. You won't be able to do that. You'll need daily personal study. I believe multiple church services are one of the best ways to grow in your Christian life. I've been going to church about three times a week for the last 32 years. It's probably the greatest, the, the greatest uh, education, biblically speaking, that I've received is by just being faithful to multiple services of church per week. I learn and I grow throughout the week and then my own personal study as well. Notice the verbs. He says, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Verse 3, opening and alleging. He explained what the Bible says, opening and laid out a case. He took them back to the Old Testament to show that the Savior would be persecuted, would die, would resurrect as Jesus did. And they were looking in the wrong place for a Savior. What happened when a bold Christian with deep biblical knowledge interacted with them? Look at what it says, the next verb in verse 4. And some of them, what's the next verb there, church? Believed. Some of them believed. By the way, some can sound like not many. Of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. Of the chief women, important ladies, not a few. It was more, more than a handful. It was people, a great multitude. What happens when Christians get bold in their witness? Everywhere they go, they start sharing how Jesus has changed their life. They start talking. They get into the Bible for themselves and start studying. They start learning. They start growing. They start conversing. And somebody asks you a Bible question you don't know, you say, that's a great question. We had one of those come up Thursday night. Somebody asked a question about the Old Testament. I said, I've never really, at our, at our home when we had the, the, the families over, I said, that's a great question. I never really thought about that exactly when that started or didn't. And I have to go back and look at that. That's okay. No, nobody, nobody's called to know every question to the answer on a moment's notice and, and then go back and study it. And, and if you can't find the answer in the Bible, then you can just say, you know what? I guess that's just my opinion. The Bible doesn't say that. Let's keep moving on. But here's what I can tell you. The stuff that matters pertaining to life and godliness, the Bible has all the answers. So get into it and reason and open and allege. And when you do, some will believe. If we'll get back to preaching Jesus, he'll get back to turning the world upside down. Number two, let me wrap it up. Number two to their method. I want you to turn. You can hold your hand here. I don't know if we'll come back to Acts 17 or not. If you want, you can put a marker there. Turn with me to the first letter he wrote this group of believers here in Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. I want you to see this for yourself. It's a beautiful passage. 1 Thessalonians. I want you to see. It gives us, see, see, there are only nine verses that tell us about how the gospel came to Thessalonica. And half of those really are telling us how the unbelievers in Thessalonica were kicking Paul and Silas out. There's not a lot telling us what actually happened while they were there. But when you read the letters of First and Second Thessalonians, by the way, I mean, if you're studying those books for yourself, just remember or jot yourself a note. If you want to go read this, they cross-reference with Acts 17. Acts 17 is the story of when Paul and Silas brought the gospel to Thessalonica. These letters are letters back to these people. And notice what Paul says. He gives us an insight into how they were able to turn the world upside down. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had, notice that word, suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, what we just read in Acts 16. We were bold in our God. Suffering did not derail us. Disappointments did not distract us. Pain did not get us off course. We were bold in our God to speak unto you, what church? The gospel of God with much contention. Well, I just want an easy Christian life. I don't know where, where that exists. A biblical Christian life, I, I don't care what your favorite TV preacher preaches. 
I don't care what book you got on Amazon that was how, how God will change everything for the better. Now, eternally and ultimately, he does change everything for the better. But my Bible says, get ready to take up your cross. My Bible says if they hated me, they're going to hate you. My Bible says here, it was contention. Paul said, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be pain. And so I want a comfortable, easy life. Following Christ is not the easiest, most comfortable life. Verse 3, for our exhortation was not of deceit. We weren't in it for ourselves. We weren't dishonest, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. We don't care what other people think. We're going to preach Jesus, which trieth our hearts. We know who we really answer to. For neither at any time used we flattering words. We weren't trying to impress you. We weren't worried if if what we said was politically incorrect. As you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. We weren't just in the ministry to see what we could get, other than I think he did ask for ripple protein shakes. But other than that, that's the only thing he wanted was some of that. He said, we didn't didn't get in the ministry for what we could get. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you. Here it is, church, notice this. Not the gospel of God only, notice this, but also our own what? Souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor, see that word, labor and travail, for laboring when? Night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. They would preach the gospel, they would meet for Bible studies, then they would go work a, a second job so they wouldn't be chargeable. They could, nobody could come in and say, well, they're just using you for your money. They said, we labored night and day so we wouldn't be chargeable to any of you. We wouldn't owe anybody anything so that it was just the gospel coming through. There were no ulterior motives. Your witnesses, and God also, verse 10, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe our lives matched our preaching. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. We never stop. Because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. What did he say? You let the word of God change your lives. Why did, why, why were they that turned the world upside down. One, it was their message, but two, it was their method. What was their method? Their method was not, how did they turn the world upside down? How did they make a significant difference in such a short time? They were 100% committed, completely sold out to the work of God. No reservations, no complacency, no second thoughts. They weren't half in, half out. Their lives matched their words. They didn't preach one thing on Sunday and live a different thing Monday through Saturday. This thing of the Christian life and loving people and making a difference was all they could think about. And we wonder why we don't make such a big difference. Are we completely surrendered? God, you have every part of me. Or God, you have my Sunday morning and I get the rest, right? And we wonder why we don't make much of a difference. Why we can't even turn our own lives right side up, our own families right side up, let alone the world. Why? Paul and Silas, there was nothing else but we've got to please him and we've got to tell everybody we can about him. That's why we exist. It's been said that great churches aren't built with spare time and pocket change. 
It seems the scourge of the American church is our desire for comfort and ease. We want our one-hour Sunday service to fulfill our weekly religious duty, and, and then we want God to let us use the other 167 hours the way that we choose. We will never turn the world upside down by giving God one or two hours on Sunday. What did Paul say? Christ, who is our life, he's everything. God, what do you want me to do Monday morning, and how do you want me to live today, and, and what do you have? And, it's, and yes, I, I work to provide for my family, but God, how can I use that to make an impact for eternity, and how can I use my finances and my relationships relationships and my words and my, my family? How can I use that to make a difference? My gifts, my skills, my talents to impact people with the love of Christ. Just as great churches aren't built with spare time and pocket change, may I suggest great Christians aren't made by giving God your leftovers. He wants our first and our best church. All through scripture, what's the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I need to be first. What about the great command when they came to Jesus in the New Testament? What's the most, of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, what's the most important one? Number one, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind. That's number one. That doesn't sound like my life sometimes. I would suggest it doesn't sound like the average American Christian's life sometimes. Does he have all of us? Our schedule, our budget, our family, our priorities, our finances, our time, our talents, our treasures. Does he have it all? God is yours to use as you want. What did he command to the church? That in all things he might have the preeminence. It didn't say that in all things he might have the prominence. He doesn't just want a, a high spot. Preeminence is the first place. That in all things he might have the preeminence. What did he say about us in our finances? In Proverbs it says, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. He wants our first and our best. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do in Ecclesiastes, do it with thy might. Whatever you're going to do for God, give it everything you've got. What did Paul say in Corinthians? For I have determined not to know anything among you as it related to what he was learning and giving his life to and his knowledge and his focus and his passion. I have determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He has my complete attention. He has my complete focus. He is, when I wake up, I want to eat, breathe, and drink Jesus and his love for me and, I, and his purpose for me and his calling for me. It's always on my mind. It's not just, oh yeah, it's Sunday again. Let me grab the Bible and, and head on down to the church and, and sing a few songs that I enjoy and hear a few words that hopefully uplift me and encourage me and turn on my favorite TV preacher for a few minutes and get a, a boost in the arm for another week and then I'll go live my life. God never intended the Christian to do that and the Christian that does that is a powerless Christian. The church that, that is trying to do less for God is a powerless church. They turn the world upside down. Why? We see it in the letter they wrote about their time with them because it was all they could think about was let's tell everybody we can about Jesus. There was something contagious about their faith. What did Paul say? Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth into those things which are before I press toward the mark. You should give them the first and best moments of your day the first and best moments of your week Sunday, the first and best of your service, the first and best of your finances, the first and best of your heart. You can look it up in the hymnal. I'd rather have Jesus, let me see what page that is, than, it, than silver or gold. I love that song. Let me find it here. If somebody else finds it, you can shout it out. I'd, I think it's in here. Maybe it's not. No, nope, maybe not. Get a new hymnal. All right. I'd rather have Jesus 
than silver or gold. It says, then to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? What was their method? I want to I find out their marketing plan. How did they turn the world upside down? What was their social media strategy? You know what their method was? Love, sacrifice, humility, surrender, authenticity, faithfulness, investment, no cost too high, no hour too late to help, night and day, no need too large. As the songwriter said, whatever it takes to draw closer to you, Lord, that's what I'll be willing to do. We live in an upside down world, don't we? I believe God can turn this world right side up just like he did 2,000 years ago. But if we're going to have any part along with fellow believers around the world in turning this crazy world upside down, you and I are going to have to make our message Christ and our method a wholehearted commitment to the work of Christ. Less church isn't the answer. Less Bible in your life isn't the answer. Less service isn't the answer. Less generosity isn't the answer. Less love isn't the answer. Less sacrifice isn't the answer. Less Jesus isn't the answer. More of Jesus and more for Jesus. That's what turned the world upside down. Their message, more of Jesus. Their method, more for Jesus. You want to see your life completely changed by Christ and used in ways you never imagined? More of Jesus, more for Jesus. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.